and welcome to Pilates 101, the podcast where we bring the latest and most up-to-date information on anything and everything related to the Pilates industry to you to help you grow your dreams and your businesses right now. Hello everyone, it's Glenn Withers here, founder of APPI, coming to you live from our London headquarters this morning. And it's a, a, a good day for some of us here in the UK, a continued uh, difficult time for over 55 million people here in the UK as we begin to come out of lockdown 2.0 here in the UK. Now, tier three restrictions are in place, which are quite significant restrictions still across the board. And for those um, in our industry that are in tier three areas and 55 million members of the population that are continuing to be sort of restricted in what they can and can't do under the tier three uh, models, our thoughts and our prayers go out to you. We, we wish you all continued health and safety, and we do hope that um, we see some changes so your lives can continue to sort of return to whatever this new normal is. For the rest of us um, in Tier 2 and Tier 1, we can begin to operate our businesses a little more freely now, which is great news, um, continuing to ensure that we provide COVID-secure environments as we do so. Now, I will um, get on to some of the sort of updates that we've had here in the UK. But just before I do, I want to give a quick shout out to all of our listeners around the world fighting their own battles and their own restrictions and various um, aspects around the virus. Wishing all of you the very best of health as we head into the Christmas season and the holiday season as well. We have great news here in the UK today that the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine has been approved for distribution here in the UK, and we believe that will happen towards the middle to later part of next week to those most vulnerable, first of all. But it is a, a long road ahead um, for everyone. We certainly understand that. We can only keep doing what we think is best for our communities and within our Pilates industries, continuing to show the importance and drive the importance of exercise. Now it is pleasing, um, for those of you that may have read, there's a, a government uh, study that's come out this morning that is highlighting the importance of exercise, um, which is why gyms and leisure centres, etc., have been able to continue to operate in all three tiers. I think the most important sort of update for us to get across is in relation to group exercise for those listeners here in the UK. Um, because it has been a confusing picture for that. Now head over to um, the community section on our website and you will see that we have um, the end of the community forum there. We've got some statements there for you. But I wanted to just go through with all of you before that, before we get on to the feature of today's podcast, which is really cool um, uh, feature and concept today. So I'm excited to share today's podcast with you all. But um, just before we do, we get a lot of requests into the Institute about where the guidelines stand. So let me refer to the statement from um, UK Active that came out here um, later part of last week, early part of this week. And the statement reads as such. To the relief of the sector, UK government has confirmed that gyms, health clubs and leisure centres will be allowed to open under all three tiers of the new COVID-19 alert system when the lockdown ends on 2nd of December, that being today. There was bad news for those depending on group exercise, however, as this will be banned in tier three areas, adding huge uncertainty for operators, especially boutiques. 
The guidance on the tiers, which has been published on the government website, and we have a link to that on our community forum as well, states that group exercise will be allowed in tiers one and two, but in tier three, classes, including fitness and dance, should not go ahead, unless between people of the same household or bubble, a prospect that many operators in the industry have called ridiculous. Group exercise has been a target for the government right through the pandemic. Prior to the second national lockdown, operators found themselves in battles with local authorities to keep group exercise classes going. Under the previous three-tier system, the official guidance from the government provided by the DCMS was that exercise classes should take place in Tier 2 and Tier 3 areas, providing the classes adhered to social distancing and that there was no mixing between the individual participants. Now that is a little bit of a confusing statement, isn't it? But my understanding is that that is in relation to social distancing measures, um, traffic flow, uh, timing of classes, etc. Yet there was evidence that local authorities who found themselves in Tier 3 were either unaware of or ignored this guidance when it came to group exercise, with many of them implementing stricter restrictions. These varied from group exercise being restricted by the Rule of Six to outright bans, even though this was not mandated nationally. Now it seems that the government has taken a much stricter stance on group workouts, but it is unclear why. Liz Terry, editor of the Health Club magazine, said, The industry will fight this irrational decision. Group exercise is a vital part of people's fitness regimes and significantly improves both fitness levels and exercise adherence. We think the government has simply been scared off by the word group, and rather than working to establish whether there is any risk, has taken the easy way and banned it outright in those Tier 3 areas without any good reason whatsoever. She continues, Group exercise has been running in a COVID-secure way right through the summer, in all areas and in all tiers, operating with the strict framework agreed between UK Active and the government, and there have been no known cases of community transmission in group exercise. The industry has proven group exercise is safe, and the government and local authorities need to familiarise themselves with the true nature of this valuable form of exercise and adjust their ruling to allow it to continue. We do have a link there on the statement page there on the community forum that takes you through to that government guidance on all three tiers as well. But what I thought we would do for you is just do a summary of that in terms of our understanding. Now, I <laughs> naturally need to preface this with the fact we are not the ruling authority here, um, but we are trying to understand as much of the guidance for all of us in the best possible way. So let me start at Tier 3, and I stress again, this is for UK operators. In Tier 3, we can all open for our one-to-one -one services, but not group exercise. We believe face masks are to be worn by teachers and clients in one-to-one -one settings and in all communal areas at all times. Now, there's not strict guidance on the use of face masks there, but that is our understanding of what COVID-secure measures mean. In Tier 2... We can open for all services, including group exercise, but we must ensure no other interaction with clients is allowed while in the centres. Now, there was some uncertainty of whether the rule of six applies or not, um, but further guidance that can be found under the frequently asked questions section um, on the um, government website does clearly state that uh, we can actually come into, that we don't have those restrictions in ar around the rule of six. Now, I'm just going to try and find um, exactly what that says. Um, it frequently asked questions there. Are exercise classes limited to the rule of six in tier one and tier two? It states here 
that exercise classes can have more than six people in them in tier one and two, as long as they follow the COVID secure guidelines, including keeping social distancing. However, you are not allowed to have more than six people mixing. So you have to control the environments in and out of your centers, you have to control your class times, and you need to look at your appropriate social distancing measures. Um, uh, it is recommended certainly from our point of view that uh, if you're in tier two in a group exercise setting that you avoid the tactile teaching approach. And again, there's unclear guidance on the use of face masks or not, um, but our sort of governance, what we are doing, and all I can tell you is what we are doing in our centres is reverting back to how it was pre-lockdown 2.0. So that was mask warning all communal areas. We are asking our teachers to wear face coverings at all times, and we are, are encouraging clients to wear their face coverings, but um, we are sort of... Um, hoping that everyone will leave it on for the actual class but if people do decide to take it off then we have to abide by people's decisions there now of course some people are um able to to not wear face masks for various reasons um but again you know all i can do is tell you what we are doing in our centers um and then you guys can make up your own minds from there in tier one all your services can go ahead, including group exercise, as long as those COVID secure measures are in place. So um, that's sort of a, uh, a state of play on where we are. Um, so for us here in the, in the UK, for those of us in Tier 1 and Tier 2, we can start to, to get our services back towards normal. Um, of course, it's still a very different environment, isn't it? You know, we still have to hope that our community um, is confident enough to come out and join into our classes and we still have restrictions on um, you know, how many classes we can do in the time allowed etc so it's far from what was a, uh, a normal situation but um, I am learning more and more just to be grateful for what we can do not focusing on what we can't and above and beyond everything ensuring that for us in our centres we keep our community and our teachers importantly safe with the appropriate measures and guidelines that we implement. So I'm wishing you all the very best as you sort of uh, find and navigate your way through these waters. Um, there is a lot of confusion out there. I hope that we've been able to give some clarity to that for you. Um, and then we, uh, we move on towards Christmas and um, I'm certainly looking forward to uh, switching off a little bit over the holiday season and just being with my family and uh, focusing on on being together and being happy and healthy and uh, looking forward to, fingers crossed, a much brighter and more prosperous 2021 for all of us. Well, look, guys, let me get on to today's topic. And what we have today I think is really cool. We are looking at the myth of core stability. Now, this has been a um, hot topic for many, many years and, oh gosh, over a decade ago, um, some of you may remember the article in the Times newspaper here in the UK that uh, challenged this concept, and um, I was able to write a rebuttal to that that uh, got great publicity around the world. Um, and uh, sort of as the time's gone on, there's been continuing sort of conversations and thoughts and, and theories around what uh, core stability is, what transversus dominus does or doesn't do, how relevant is it, do we stick with neutral, what do we do? And of course, everybody has their different opinions. And you know what? I am not a black and white person at all. 
not right nor wrong. I think there's a way of having a look at it and coming to terms with what you believe is best based on your understanding and your experience. And that's what I'm going to share with you um, here today. So in a um, moment, I'm going to hand you over to a, uh, a bit, uh, audio recording of an uh, interview slash evening chat that I did with Michael King Friday just gone. Now, um, Michael King is one of those sort of superstars of the Pilates industry, and it was uh, a pleasure to be invited onto his channel to be able to talk over this concept of myth of core stability. So what I thought I might do as a little intro into the chat that I have with Michael before I hand you over, is just get a little breakdown of where we are. So here's my sort of chronological order of where we were with the concept of core stability. So the actual concept of transversus abdominis, multifidus, this cylinder of stability and how it works around the rumbus spine really comes from the 1986 VMO research of how that local joint muscle, the vastus medius obliquus, acts to control the knee. And then on the basis of that understanding, in the early 90s, we started to look at that in terms of transversus abdominis, led, of course, by the University of Queensland team, Carolyn Richardson, Gwendolyn Joe, Julie Hyde, um, and um, we sort of continued to sort of push forward um, there as well. Now, when you look at the um, sort of big, I'm trying to find the right way to sort of uh, uh, put this out there for you. Um, and of course, uh, as you know, Paul Hodges was big in relation to the transversus abdominis side um, of all of this. And um, he, he does have a great article out called the, um, uh, what is it, the A Different View of the Elephant. Um, it was a 2010 article he put out that's really fascinating reading. It's in our um, recommended reading articles that are available on the website uh, if you're not familiar with it. Um, but let me do a little bit of a chronological order. So the VMO research in 86, um, Callan Richardson's um, studies around transversus abdominis started to come out around 1994. Um, Paul Hodges' stuff started around 1998 as we increased our understanding of what transversus abdominis could do. And then we had the 2001 article by Julie Hines looking at multifidus and the issue around 80% recurrence of first episode like back pain that can be reduced by up to 50% with appropriate activation of multifidus and transversus abdominis post pain. Um, and so then it, it went on. We had 2004 studies confirming what they found earlier on and linking in with the pelvic floor connection. Um, that went on in 2005 to Donna Urquhart's study where she looked at how the um, abdominal muscles react and respond in different positions of the spine. So she compared neutral to posterior tilt to anterior tilt and found that we get the, the, the best connection to that transversus abdominis in neutral spine. Um, and really that's where for us we really found that, that connection and that um, clarification that neutral really is the best position to be in, in our opinion. Um, we link that to function. So if you look at a posterior tilt position when you're exercising, are you going to walk in that same position? And, and I doubt that. If you look at an anterior tilt position, is that comfortable? Does that make your back feel nice and free and long and lean? Or, or does it feel a bit restricted and tight and scrunched up? 
in 2008, Ruth Sapsford's uh, pelvic floor studies came along, um, which showed the connection to the pelvic floor and how the importance of that subtle connection into the pelvic floor was. Professor McGill obviously challenged all of this around 2008 as well with his more um, concept of just bracing the lumbar spine and, and looking at the fact that these small activations won't do enough, you need to brace more. Um, and again, I think that's where we started to look at it in terms of relevance to the load. So a low load task, it may well be better controlled by a low load connection. Whereas yes, of course, a high load task needs to be managed by a higher load connection. Uh, and then in 2010, we had this great um, sort of different view of the element uh, elephant come out from um, Paul Hodges. And there were some really um, interesting points from there, if I could just share a few of those. Um, now, he, he states that when you look at um, the, the older research, um, the question of that control may not as be as simple as was once thought, i.e. not about just that pure isolation of the muscle, but it does not alter the positive outcomes from the interventions learned to train these muscles. And I have to admit, I really do agree. Just because research was done at a set date and time doesn't mean that the lessons learned from that are therefore no longer relevant. Of course, we can learn more. We can advance our thinking, advance our thought processes as we progress on, which is what we do every day. And that's why new research is important, but um, I, I don't think it's necessary for us to ignore some of the interesting and valuable findings that we've learned along the way. Now, one of the things that I think people have perhaps misunderstood about the function of TA is that it can do multiple tasks at once. Um, I think some people looking at this and, and <coughs> some of the research that has sort of tried to go against the effectiveness of TA has tried to have it as a single-use muscle, and I don't think that's really the case, and I think um, Paul Hodges would support that with his evidence. I think it's interesting to hear from Paul that um, transversus abdominis, for example, can work tonically during gait, but phasically with the breath, this is assists expiration. And it also has peaks of activity with heel strike, where you get your peak reactive force. So what he's really saying there is actually, of course it's not as simple as once thought. The muscle works in multiple ways, in multiple directions, and can actually multitask at the same time. And that's something that I think we have to keep in mind when we look at the concept of how the muscle works. Because another misunderstanding is often that the muscle has to work symmetrically in order to be effective. And I'm not sure that is actually the case. There was a 2008 article by Allison that challenged a lot of these concepts. Um, and that study actually showed that it was active on both sides, just not always simultaneously. And it's still active in a feed-forward motion and both active prior to deltoid activation. So, in fact, while challenging some of the thoughts, they actually showed another way of understanding the muscle's function. Now, some studies looking at uh, TA um, look at its role more sort of in relation to a flexor moment. Um, and to, to, again, to isolate it into just one function is not really truly understanding how the muscle works. Because by doing that, you're ignoring the biomechanical data, which is significant out there, that shows its connection to intra-abdominal pressure and facial tension. And it's that connection there, I think, that we also have to be really clear about, guys. And that leads on to Professor Vlieming, Professor Andre Vlieming's study in 2014, 
that concept of transversus abdominis not actually being considered just on its own anymore as a muscle, that its muscle fascial tendinous connections make it more almost like the transversus abdominis tendon, and it's much more multifactorial in the way that it functions and crucial to the way that we actually move. Now, I guess we're honest about the myth of core stability. The other thing that we have to address is some of Peter O'Sullivan's work that looks at the concept of too much versus too little. And again, I think there's really, really great lessons to be learned there in that you do have clients that are really restricted in their movement and they're in a massive holding pattern, erector spine are going crazy, locking out into their lumbar spine, often sitting in quite a lot of lumbar extension and rigid in their spine. Now, if that's the case and they're not moving because they're worried about what's going to happen if they move, then it would make sense, wouldn't it, to actually move and mobilize that client and not focus on increasing the tension within that system. And I agree with that. However, that's not to say that then the opposite doesn't apply. When you have somebody that's very detoned and deactive and there is very little tension in that system and as a result of that, they are having pain or dysfunctions with movement, in which case that system needs to be upregulated, increased and activated in that sense. So as I started um, stated at the outset here, I think it's important that we're not sort of, you know, one side or the other side, that we take a reasoned view of all the evidence that's out there. And I think that will help us really understand what we're looking at when we focus on the importance of that neutral aspect of the importance of TA, multifidus, pelvic floor, within the way that we teach. Now, obviously, the way we taught 20 years ago has evolved enormously. And those of you that have done your updates will be well aware of where we are with that. So I'll leave you with those sort of summary thoughts as we head into the interview with Michael. I hope you enjoy it. I really had an interesting chat. I had a nice time um, with Michael. He's always a pleasure to spend time with and have a chat about everything to do with Pilates. So I'll hand you over to Michael King interviewing myself, and then I'll see you guys on the other side. Well, good evening. Let me um, welcome you all to uh, this evening's uh, amazing exciting talk with us this evening. Hopefully we're going to make it amazingly exciting. <laughs> um, if you're joining us for the first time, let me just go through a little bit of housekeeping. Regular housekeeping. Um, as we go through the evening, if you've got questions, which I hope you do, then please go ahead and use the chat function and type in your question. And as when we get a moment, if we do get a moment between the talking that we're going to be doing, then we'll bring up your questions. We'll try and get to all the questions by, um, by the end of the evening. Um, if you want, Glenn and I are going to be talking, and so if you want to pin us, I'll, I'll, if you're not used to Zoom, although I can't imagine you're not used to Zoom after what we've been through this year, uh, on the top button where it's got view, you can have speaker function, or you can have gallery where you can see everyone's face. Uh, that's completely up to you as to uh, what which one you want to watch. Um, as always, we record this, and so for those people that uh, couldn't make it and be here to ask the live questions, uh, then the recording will be done as soon as it's edited. We have to edit it and get rid of all the, the bad-looking stuff and put it into your MK account, and you'll have access to that permanently. As you have to any of the other talks, in case you've missed them, um, since we started this back in March. Anyway, enough of all that. Let's get on with what we're here for. And I would like to welcome Mr. Glenn 
with us. Glenn, how are you? I'm very well. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for having me. Hello, everyone. It's, uh... wow, well, it's so good to see you. It feels like forever. <laughs> it... your event. Elisa was with us, of course, in the Isle of Man. Yeah. It's like a long time since I've seen you. Yes. When was the last time? Do you remember when the last time? It would. It was probably two years and one week ago. Because one week ago we should have been at our conference in London, but uh, alas, it uh, it did not happen. Nope, it did not. Um, so just for those people that do not know you, which is I can't believe it, just give us a, a abbreviated version of your journey in Pilates. Okay. All right. I'll give you the elevator version, shall we? Yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. Um, so uh, my name's Glenn. I'm one of the founders of APPI, which stands for the Australian Physiotherapy and Pilates Institute. And um, we got a scholarship back in the 1999 to uh, investigate the clinical relevance of Pilates, uh, predominantly around back pain. Um, and so we came out. Well, we touched many different, reached out to many different Pilates teaching companies in the world. And Michael was kind enough to uh, be happy for us to come and join him. And we trained under Michael for a year. Um, and then the project was to look at the movement specifically in relation to pain and rehabilitation. So we looked at each and every one of the mat work movements and then the equipment movements based on three things pain, pathology, and function. And as a result of looking at those three factors, generated four to six levels of most of the sort of more original or classical content. So you can deliver a step-by-step uh, -step Pilates program for somebody that's been through a pain episode from day one post-op all the way through to sort of wellness and fitness. Um, and then we opened our own studios. We worked uh, here in London. We worked... Um, all around the world we, we teach in around 22 countries now um, and my main role is sort of uh, clinically with long-term sort of pain clients and using Pilates as a rehabilitation method um, and then also working in the uh, elite sports field working at sort of Olympic Games level and um, Premier League football sort of stuff. I remember when you f we first it was way back we just started didn't have a studio, I think, because I remember when we did the reformer training, I think we we're just at Holmes Place at that stage, or something we were yeah. at that time, but you came and did, you and Elisa did your reformer training, I was living in Columbia Road, uh -huh. and it was a great loft, and we actually yeah. dragged the equipment up to the empty loft next door, and that's where you did your first reformer training. It um, is, yes, it was our very first intro to London, and we had no idea of the area, but we got to go down to the market and different things at lunch breaks. I remember it very well. Yeah, the best. And then I remember, well, tell me if I'm wrong, you know, sometimes you kind of get blurry as far as exactly what did happen. But I remember the research that came out that changed everything. Uh, came out about the, same, about the same time as we were going to Australia to present ah, yeah. a course or a file or something. Yeah, and I thought Sydney. I was panicked about it. I was thinking, my God, everyone's going to know about this. But, but as of course, we get to Australia and nobody had heard about the research. <laughs> uh, but that research really changed how I was teaching. Because until that point, I was imprinting like everyone else had been imprinting. Mm -hmm. And we were training, we were taught to suck in more, you know, zip and hollow, um, to, is the movement got harder? But of course, that came along and changed everything. Yeah. Um, that kind of is that vaguely true? I mean, I, as I say, in my head it's true, but sometimes I get nervous about what's true and what's not. Uh, yeah, it's 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 
it's pretty close. I mean, the very first sort of introduction, if you like, of the, the concept of transversus abdominis being a muscle of note that acts very differently to sort of the traditional powerhouse muscles of the, the more classical approach, I guess. Um, it sort of came out originally um, probably around 1994 was the very first part, but it was very sort of pilot study based. Um, 98 was the first proper study. That's when they sort of started showing how things um, might change in relation to pain and, and, and what have you. And then it was sort of 2001 with the Julie Hyde's multifidus article that it all really kicked off um, from there. Yeah. And um, I, remember, I remember somebody coming to the story that, you know, that Richardson, Helen Richardson actually prolapsed her disc yeah. writing the book, which is because she was on a deadline and she had to get it out. And I always remember that, that stuck in my head. Um, and we changed everything. Back then, you know, I remember bringing in neutral pelvis, neutral spine, and talking about 30% a lot. <laughs> and we became kind of the standard, but no other Pilates companies were doing that at that time. I remember because teachers would get, say to me, but why not the others do? I said, well, I don't know. We just kind of adapting as, we, as this research came out and showed us that you know, there was another way of doing it, really, maybe a better way at the time. Yeah, I guess, you know, a, a different way, shall we say, because I guess um, it's hard to say one way or the other. But yes, when it first came out, certainly in the, in the uh, Pilates world, it was quite controversial, um, to be honest. We, uh, yeah. yeah, still is. Yeah, still well, is. that's true. That's true. Um, yeah, those classical teachers, and they were all... Yeah, uh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, look, the, the, when the, the concept of neutral first, first came out, it was, um, you know, groundbreaking at the time i guess um backed up very strongly by some very good sort of for for want of research terms double-blinded empirical studies that um you know really gave credence to what they were talking about um but i think part of what was somewhat um interesting i guess to try and unravel was the concept of what's happening in relation to pain versus somebody that hasn't had a pain episode. And how does that alter the way we do or don't teach? And is neutral still relevant in that instance or is it only relevant in an instance of pain? Um, but I guess the, the other concept of that is just is looking at it from when that neutral spine concept came out. I think the thing that we were really keen on investigating and looking at is, well, to us, it made sense, and I remember talking to you uh, in quite depth about it, Michael, um, and especially when we headed out to Sydney there, um, was uh, if we function in a certain way, then every other element of exercise physiology tells you to train that way. Um, and so now we had a bit of research that could back up what seemed to be a much more functional way of working the muscles around the spine and incorporating that into, into the Pilates repertoire. So... I think that's sort of, the yeah. Time, it was around the time that Pilates started getting crazy. You know, before that time, it was kind of almost like an underground organization going on. Studios, busy studios, but there weren't that many. And people often say to me, you know, what, what made Pilates suddenly explode? And it was around that time. I mean, you know, functional training was suddenly got, started getting talked about. You know, you guys as physiotherapists started looking at what we were doing with Pilates, although... There were physiotherapists involved in blood long before this research came out. Yeah. Um, 
But then things have changed because now, 20 years later, you know, we look the same. We haven't aged one moment. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Now, you know, looking back on it, were we obsessed? Did we go too far? Did we, did we restrict our, the conversation by just teaching neutral? And the 30%. Yeah, because I think it's it's an interesting question. It is probably the conversation point at the moment as well. Um, and really for the last probably eight, 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 eight almost 10 years, it's been a lot of debate um, in, in all forms of exercise, hasn't there, about whether neutral 30% pre-activation, you know, how relevant are all these things now? Um, I guess when I look back on it, I, I think at the time, it was what the research was telling us was the right thing to do. Um, and I think you have to sort of take on board what is being uh, evidenced at the time. So um, I, I guess at the, now, knowing what we know now, especially what we've learned in probably the last 10 years, which has moved our understanding on enormously, one would look back and say, Yes, the concept of trying to independently activate a single muscle that has such a multifunctional task in normal function, um, we were probably trying to, um, or believing we were achieving something that may not have been achievable given the interactions of what, what the body does in a functional pattern. Um, so I, I don't believe we were wrong at all with neutral. Um, and I'm, I'm you know, happy to take any of the questions and comments on that. So I, I don't believe that at all. Um, I do feel that knowing what we know now, and you know the studies will 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 talk about it. And there's actually there's a um, a great article um, that Paul Hodges wrote a couple of years back um, that talks about transversus abdominis, the elephant in the room, um, and it's his view of looking back over the last ten years of some of the studies that have challenged the concept of transversus abdominis. Um, and he puts his points, few, uh, put points across really well. Um, so uh, to try and come back to your question, Michael, uh, I don't think we were wrong with neutral. I think maybe, oh, no, what we know now, we know that trying to isolate transversus abdominis in neutral um, was not probably doing the, the, the utmost for what we thought it was uh, for our clients. But a lot better than imprint. I mean, this is, yeah. you know, I, I swear, you know, I still get so many questions. And I think also the biggest thing is how clients or patients in your case, how they interpret what you're asking them to do. And I think there is this myth, this is, recently it's been a little bit more on the pelvic floor where you train it almost like a fitness muscle. And I think, you know, the words that, I know I'm cueing it differently to what I did 20 years ago. <laughs> I laugh and think about what our cell phones were like 20 years ago, <laughs> you know, and what the cell phones are like, smartphones are like today. You know, things have changed. Yeah. But I think what's changed for me most is how I talk about things. I mean, for new teachers learning with us, I ban the word 30%. And then I say, once you've done the exam, you can never say the word neutral again. You know, we have to find different ways of, of explaining the same thing. Because I've had clients say to me, shall I sleep in neutral? You know, shall, shall I go to the toilet with neutral? And I'm like, you know, of course. I say, yes, of course. You know, you have to do this all the time. You know, because it's impossible. P people take it out of context and they think, and they start bracing. Mm -hmm. What I've been following a lot about is, you know, there's, is that people with back problems coming, being told to brace, they finish up with worse back problems because they were already bracing when they came in. So it's kind of a, a counterproductive as far as moving forward.
But yeah. I think it was a great learning curve from the Pilates industry because up until that point, we were all not just gently pushing our backs into the mat, but we were slamming our backs into the mat hard. Yeah. So I think you know, it, was a, it was a great, if not challenging, evolution. But then moving forward from there to where we are now, what we know since 10 years ago, then I think we have to take something on board and realize that it's time to refresh how we're talking about it. If it's not, if that's the only thing. So that was a long one. I just went off on one then. I realized I was preaching a little bit, but go ahead. Take any of that and answer it. Um, all right, I can take a few parts of that. Uh, let me... Uh, let me let me take the well, let me try i guess and address the concept of um neutral versus a imprint or posterior tilt or or flat back or whatever term you want to give it um first of all the blood is in his book refers to a straight spine yeah That's how he referred to the spine which is kind of anyway yeah well yeah, because it's not straight, right? We have an, we have an S-curved spine, and we have that because we need that for shock absorbance. That's one of the main roles of what sort of the interlayers of the anatomy of our spine give us. That's why we have discs and vertebral end plates and uh, ligament attachments and fascia and what have you. So the spine is not straight, and we don't want it to be straight. Um, hence, why would you train the muscles, <clears throat> why would you train the body in a position that isn't functional? Um, so what we, do, uh, what we do a lot of with our, with our clients in our classes, and we, um, we often do it, and those of you guys that have trained with us and, and taken class with us, you'll probably know the same thing. I get people in that position in standing. So I'm just going to stand up here for a moment because, as you know, as movement teachers, we can't actually sit still. So I'm just going to stand up for movement anyway, and if I bring my screen down, and so if I'm here... And if I come into an imprint, like so, and then I go to walk around, that doesn't really look like what we're trying to achieve with our clients if we're teaching them how to move efficiently, right? And that's one of those key principles of, of the program right from when Joe designed it, was to try and teach us efficiency of movement. So we would take our clients into those extremes and take them into a flat back and say, you know, what does that feel like? Does that feel good? Do you feel aligned? Is that where you want to spend your life? And if it's not, then maybe it's not the right place to work out. Um, likewise, taking them all the way into an anterior tilt and asking the same question. What does that feel like? Does that feel nice and free? And, and do you feel comfortable in that position? You know, or does that feel quite jammed up and tight and not really where you want to be? Um, and so if you don't like those ends of the extremes of the movement, maybe it makes more sense for us to do your exercises in a position that's a little bit more comfortable for you. Um, hence the concept of neutral. Um, now, if I come onto the, do I uh, maintain neutral all the time? Um, well, that's impossible because again, that's not functional either because we move in and out of neutral in all our daily functions. And so the movements within the repertoire is brilliant because you know, you take an articulated shoulder bridge, for example, while you might start and finish in neutral, you're moving through that concept, which is, again, a functional movement pattern that if we can teach through the play's repertoire, then it's great. Um, but also, it's really important, I think, and I know you guys all know this, but just for the sake of completeness, to appreciate the fact that neutral is not an anatomical point. It's a relative point based on that person's structure 
any given day. And a individual's concept of neutral and their perception of neutral will change over time. You know, as their body adapts to a little bit more flexibility through the hamstrings, some better gluteal activation, some better cortical control within their stabilizing system, their neutral will change. Their concept of neutral will change. So we don't get too hung up on exactly where neutral is, but we do train in that person's relative neutral to try and achieve, show that we get the right results. Um, now, not to go too, too uh, research heavy here, but the good thing is, again, that was investigated. And it was, they looked at it. They looked at the activation of transversus abdominis in neutral versus posterior tilt versus anterior tilt. And which of those anatomical positions gives us the best firing capacity, the best ability to access our stabilizing systems that support the structure. And thankfully they found that a neutral lumbar spine position, you got better activation strategies into TA, multifidus, pelvic floor, etc., versus a posterior tilt or an anterior tilt. So I think when you sort of take that argument of should you or shouldn't you go in neutral, well, we look at it from the point of view, of what's, what's function? How are we gonna move? We know basic exercise training tells us there's a specificity of training if we want muscles to function a certain way. Um, and also, it's backed up by the literature. So, um, you know, that concept is one I think we're, we're doing the right thing by. But as you say, not getting hung up on a set point because it, it is different for people and can be different in the same person on different days depending on how their body feels. Well, we had a guest on who, a speaker who came and said, basically any research more than five years ago can't be taken on board, you know, because things have changed. And obviously, you know, things have come out since then. And, you know, the, the general movement as far as pain is concerned, as far as I'm aware, is, you know, you don't, you move the body, you don't just lay on a mat and just do a Pilates. You know, there has to be movement involved as, outside of not just doing Pilates. But has anything really come along? Because... You know, tonight we're talking about the myth of core, and it does seem like the fitness world became obsessed with core classes, core functioning, functioning, and, you know, it's all, and that's why they love, in a way, they love Pilates, and we saw things being done with Pilates where they put, like, the five core movements together, the hundred, the single leg stretch, double leg stretch, scissors, and crisscross, and it became like a trend, because it was almost like we have to get our core stronger, you know, and, I mean, I refer to it as active now, I don't say strong, I say active but what has come along really to show us that a direction that we need to be aware of, not to say, not learn everything tonight, but <laughs> should we be looking towards something new from what we learned back in, in the, with that early research? Yeah, okay. All right. So I'm, I'm going to try. Uh, it's just a, such a big subject. There's so many it is. I want to ask you. I know. I know. I'm trying to try. <laughs> yes. So I'm going to try and. and keep it as brief as I can, but I do apologize for those of you who uh, haven't heard me talk. I find that very difficult to keep things brief. Um, first up, um, I don't agree uh, that if research was done more than five years ago, we ignore it. Um, because I, I think that's a, um, a poor way to look at very important information that's been discovered along the journey of understanding the body. So um, I think that to throw away evidence that was very important in our understanding of the body just because it has a certain date on it um, is not so relevant. You know, 
some of the most important information on um, you know, the way we exercise our bodies in relation to osteoporosis was done in 1972. Just because it was done back then doesn't mean that it's still wrong now. You know? um, it, was, it was great. What I do think is that everything evolves, and you touched on it earlier, Mike, you know, our phones are very different now to they were five years ago. Our understanding of evidence is very different to where it was 20 years ago. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the foundations of understanding that we learn are also wrong. Um, maybe we can look at what we learned and what maybe we didn't understand at the time and how that's evolved rather than a sort of right or wrong approach. Um, so in terms of moving forwards uh, from that and the core and this concept of the, the, the myth of core, um, I guess I have to touch on one thing and the first question would be okay what do we mean by our core because that's really a huge question that we have to address and when we're talking about core core stability core strength what have you what are we actually talking about so um, I think what we uh, misunderstood many years ago was that the core is not one thing the, the core is a multitude of different layers of muscles and fascia and ligament that interact together so if you take the concept that, um, the, or if I put out the concept, for example, that you, you may well have three le levels of your core, your, what we would class as your inner core, your outer core, and your extended core. And all three layers are as important as each other. Um, what you're looking at is which element of your core is relevant to the load of this task. Therefore, what level of that core do I need to access in order to achieve efficiency of movement? So, you know, if I'm sat here right now talking to you guys, um, you know, I don't need to access big, strong muscles in order to hold my core because obviously then I would increase intra-abdominal pressure. That would put problem on my onto my discs and my SI joints, etc. I need to access more of my inner core um, in order to hold a posture so that... You know, and this is going back years, and I still think it's 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 accurate. You're talking about your inner core in terms of that connection of transversus abdominis, multifidus, pelvic floor diaphragm, and that cylinder of stability that we've we spoke about decades ago. Um, it's still a relevant concept because when you look at pain and dysfunction, they're the muscles that are first affected by pain. Pain's a chemical; it affects the way that these muscles function. Um, and then you have your your outer core. And you start to come on to some of those facial chains that are brilliant that we've learned so much about over the recent time. Yeah? And you come on to those lat dorsi glute connections, the erector spinae hamstring connections, the thoracolumbar fascia connections. And those things are all important and that is still your core. Um, and then we have to accept that you know, the trunk itself can't function alone. So you have your extended core, your shoulder girdle, upper arm, into your hip, down to your knee, um, you know, and if, if we're looking at that as, as your core, then we have very, a lot of different elements to how we could train it. So, uh, circling back to the very last point I'll try and make, what have we learned new, really new? And I think what we've really learned new came from a 2014 article by Professor Andre Vleeming. Um, and he looked at the concept that um, maybe even talking about transversus abdominis as a muscle has evolved. 
and that transversus abdominis is not a singular muscle. Um, the research in terms of like the 2010, 2012 sort of stuff started to highlight the fact that it doesn't work on its own. Um, and previously we thought if transversus abdominis wasn't working symmetrically, then it wasn't working at all. Um, you know, we, we've learned that's not the case. You can have an asymmetrical TA, it still means that it's functioning. It may not be optimized in its function, but it doesn't mean it's not working. Um, and it's linked to rotation. Um, we've learned a lot about how, how TA assists and controls rotation. It doesn't just hold the spine in its position. But what Gleaming taught us was the concept that if we looked at transversus abdominis as a t common tendon, so the common transversus tendon, which means it's the muscle plus the fascial attachments onto the bony structure. Um, and so that means, getting to my actual point here, I'm sorry, that means that um, we have to then trust the movement pattern rather than stopping the movement to check on the muscle response. And this is where, for us, our cueing has changed enormously. So if a muscle is dysfunctional, i.e. you've had pain or dysfunction now or in the years past, that muscle still needs to be awoken. So we, we know that pain inhibits the muscles and that still needs to be awoken. So the concept of centering and teaching access to your centering muscles in a neutral spine unloaded is still a very relevant concept. But once you've gained that access, be it, it doesn't have to be perfect, but once there's that indication that that particular client can access those muscles, um, whichever way that might be, be it through a lower tummy cue, a pelvic floor cue, a standing lat press cue, whatever it might be. But once they've accessed that, we then need to teach the movement rather than keep doing the movement and saying, let me check if you're still centered or let me check if you've still got that pattern. You'll learn if they've got that activation, if they can control the appropriate movement. So if their movement is impaired, they probably aren't controlling the muscle function correctly, um, which is what Pilates is brilliant for. And it, you know, a lot of the um, research sort of five, five, six, seven years ago, they started to attack Pilates quite heavily. And actually what they came about was they were trying to put Pilates into the box of this TA activation, whereas what they were describing was exactly what Pilates does, you know, teaching a continuous movement pattern that is based on how the body moves. So I guess that's the most recent um, sort of uh, change in terms of trusting if you've got a dysfunction, you still need to wake the muscle up. But once you've got it and you're teaching movement, don't ever stop the movement to go back and check if it's still there because you're laying down those relearning programs from the brain. And if we keep the movement pattern correct, we should get the muscle response we're after. Remember you did an article for Body Workers Journal, which uh, you talked about people coming from different backgrounds mm -hmm. and how none of, everyone comes with a different view of looking at Pilates, whether you're a physiotherapist, whether you're a dancer, whether you're from fitness. I remember that article, it, was, it was, made a big impression on me because it, it's really true that people come to our method with different views and experiences. And it can seem very confusing, um, you know, for a new teacher coming along. Because especially today where we've got such division, and it is really separatism between the what they're calling classical, which doesn't really exist, by the way, but what they're calling that, and also what we look at and understanding that information is fluid and we do sometimes have to change and I think my two points are really that somebody 
coming looking for answers um, and being thrust as we were teaching group classes which aren't happening so much except on Zoom at the moment <laughs> they're, they're facing a lot of stories when it comes to muscle imbalance and muscle stories and you know what people have done with their bodies and I think you know the limitation obviously when we're teaching a group class is that we can't do so much specificity we have to be more general um, I think what I'm going to try and ask you is how would you approach from your point of view a group class when you've got a group of individuals with so much variety in story you know yeah. how would you what would your advice be to a teacher in that environment okay well good question good question let me let me see if i can answer that for you uh i've got a few other ones up uh, right behind sir yeah stretch them out, stretch them out. I mean, yeah. it's just i mean you you come from a very clinical background you've yeah. got this you know, this huge knowledge and experience and you know and but then many people out there don't have the same clinical experience and they teach and they want to they want to be doing it correctly that's really what we're talking about yeah, but yeah. teachers want to do the right thing teachers don't want to do the wrong thing and so they're guided, you know, looking to think this might be the best thing to do. Neutral, 30%. That's how we, we thought. But now with group class, how do we approach it? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, I think what we also have to accept is what is feasible to achieve in a group exercise environment. Um, I think that's one thing that all teachers should accept as they go into a group class. You're never, ever going to teach the same level of feedback of specificity to a group as you will in a one-to-one -one environment and um, I think that's important for us to understand I think it's important for our clients to understand that they're making a choice if they like about what level of support feedback etc that that they're after in the session um, so if we uh, go to the group side of it um, it would, for me, it would come down to how you structure your group classes. So um, are you allowing open classes? So anyone of any level can come to your class. Um, and that is really, really challenging, isn't it? That's the, probably for me, the hardest type of class to try and teach. Um, I would strongly suggest that um, you, you follow your levels. So you you, you set out what the level of your class is. Is it a beginner, inter or advanced class? Um, or is it more of a pathology specific class? So is it a low back pain class? Is it a knee rehab class, etc.? Because all of those classes differ significantly. Um, and that from the teacher's point of view, and certainly in our studios, we would you know, advocate that we're teaching by level. Um, and that allows us to teach at the appropriate level for that class um, if you are teaching the mixed level type approach then yeah it, it is really tough how do you keep somebody very new to the to the technique happy and engaged and working safely whereas you've got somebody more experienced in the technique who wants to work at a different level um, to circle back to how do they know you're doing it safely well movement tells us safety is one of the things that we look at and I think Pilates teachers, no matter where they're trained, are excellent at looking at, is this a correct movement pattern? And so that would be my guidance um, mostly is to say, right, um, at the start of a class, we would advise everyone always gives a little verbal warning to say, look, you know your body's much more than we do. So if there's any movement that you know is not right for you or anything that you feel 
is um, uncomfortable or doesn't work for you, then you know, give me a shout and we can try and give you a variation. Um, building the class up, so um, you know, having your levels so you can wake up the system appropriately through a few warm-up movements um, in most of your, your movements. So that might be in standing, that might be lying on the mats or sitting, etc. but have a, a little stagger to the way that you build the movement up as well. Um, but do a, do a body check. I mean, everyone, no matter where they're trained from, I'm sure have their version of the five key elements and that little body check that we do and ensure that you do that at your start of your class, no matter what level of class you're teaching. So people get that connection with where are they today within their body and within themselves before class. Um, but in order to do it uh, safely is to, to trust the movement, look at the movement pattern, um, focus on the breath, are they able to um, breathe in, in a way that doesn't appear that it's straining their body? Um, because even when you're working at a high level, you can still breathe appropriately, right? It's only when you're starting to go maybe beyond what you can actually achieve that the breath can really become a concern. Yeah, so basically I was just, I was just really covering there at the end, Michael, just the fact that um, in order to know your teaching safely, trust the quality of the movement of your clients. Yeah? And, and if you're seeing the movement quality, then I'm sure that you're, you're teaching in a, in a safe way. So going back to your article that I mentioned, you know, you, you said different people come from different backgrounds. There was a big movement in Australia that only, they tried to get it that only physiotherapists could teach Pilates. What was your view on that one? Oh, I thought it was horrible. I'm going to be... <laughs> yeah. I'm going to be, and I'm going to be completely honest, and I say this to all of all of um, the people that come from my profession. Um, just because you're a physiotherapist does not make you a good movement teacher. In fact, many many movement teachers are much better at teaching movement than physiotherapists. Um, and you know, I had to work on it. I came, you know, I my original training was as a manipulative physiotherapist. So when I graduated from physio school, um, you know, I basically worked in a clinic where it was sort of a 15 minutes stack them and crack them sort of approach to how we managed pain, you know. Um, they would come in and be like, well, is that sore? Yeah, okay, well, I'll just manip that here, manip that there. Draw a little stick figure for your exercise in the final minute of the session so you've got something to come away with. And I can write in my notes that I've given you a home exercise program. Um, but actually, it, it wasn't until, um, you know, the sort of muscle imbalance theories really started to become predominant that we saw exercise as a form of treatment rather than something that we had to give at the end of treatment. And then when I came over and started training with you, Michael, and I saw, um, you know, I still remember my very first mat work course um, because there was 20-odd uh, people there, uh, two males, myself being one of them, and every other person had a dance background. And um, I clearly did not. And I remember commonly been shown um, the before and after approach to many of the exercises that you kindly put me through and uh, used me as the before somebody who's done Pilates and everyone else as the after people that have done Pilates. <laughs> this is the person that has never done Pilates before. Yes. Um, it, yes, I remember, I think it was at Holmes Place. It was, yes, yes. Yeah, yep. and I also remember when I had to do my exam, he said, who wants to go first? And I was like, I'm going first because I don't want you to see anyone else get mine done so you don't have to mark me against all these people that move beautifully. Um, I mean, it, it, it's, but now there's other countries, I think, in 
Brazil, physiotherapists have to learn Pilates to be a physiotherapist. I know in Hungary, there's different countries which they're really kind of pushing the physios to do Pilates more. I mean, definitely Brazil, where you have to learn it. Yeah. Uh, so I think it. But from your point of view, you know, you represent the in the UK, well, in other countries as well. But uh, the physios looking at non-physio Pilates teachers. You know, we've always we've always thought Pilates is that gap between fitness and um, and injured people or physiotherapists mm-hmm. that it can kind of fit it quite nicely. Uh, in my head, maybe it hasn't been so clear because I think it depends what type of Pilates people go into. If they go into a kind of an advanced class or a traditional class, it's not maybe the best place to go to if you've got a back problem. But, yeah. um, but it has... Yeah, I'm good. You've seen, you've seen changes in the UK yeah. when you guys first set up. I mean, when did you first start API? What year was that? 2001, um, so we, yeah, yeah, and we did, we opened our first clinic, um, I think it was, oh, I think it was 2002, um, yeah, yeah. What I've loved about your conventions over the years is they've been really inclusive, I mean, you have such a, a wide variety of presenters there, and <laughs> but often, now, many physios, even still today, we have to lower the level a little bit. Uh, for a while, we were training at St. Thomas's Hospital when we were with Sandra Noonan when she was running our uh, theory. And I always remember the, that's a training hospital with about 80, 80 physiotherapists there. And they'd always come in saying, oh, I have this problem. What exercise should I do? And I'm like, you're a physio. But, yeah. you know, but they, apart from a few of them, which were quite active, they weren't that active. Do you think that's changed in your industry? Do you think physios have got more active? <laughs> I'm trying to search. Yeah, I'm trying to search through. I'm trying to search through the screen here a little bit and recognise just how many people I know before I answer that question. <laughs> um, um, is it still a big division? Well, I think you just can't. I just, I, in all honesty, if I answer the if I answer the question brutally, I just think we can't generalise, be it in physiotherapy or any other profession. To be honest. It's a, you know, do I think that um, the physiotherapy profession is embracing movement as a way of um, improving people's function a lot more? Yeah, I do. Very much more. I think as a profession, we've definitely um, had a transition significantly from sort of using machines like, you know, ultrasound machines and um, interferential machines and other things to try and, and work on pain to using movement and exercise as the, the form of treatment to help people move forward with, with whatever injury or um, dysfunction or what have you they, they might present with. Um, but look, I'm, I, I don't think you can say that uh, physiotherapists necessarily have got fitter or, or better at moving. I think there's a larger percentage of the population that have embraced the importance of movement and those that have, have therefore learnt to move a lot better and thankfully therefore have learnt to teach movement a lot better. Um, I think that's the one thing that I would still say in across the board in physiotherapy as a profession is we can all get better at moving better ourselves. Some people could teach movement quite well but actually not necessarily uh, move as well as they're asking their clients to move. So, um, you know, really working on, on your, yourself a lot makes you a much better 
Pilates teacher, doesn't it? The more you do, the better you teach. Um, and um, I mean, we've opened, we say, I'm not a physiotherapist. I work with physiotherapists. You know, we have to know our limitations as Pilates teachers. And one thing I just want to touch a little bit on that is how would you, what advice would you give to a Pilates teacher to market to a physiotherapist? Because when people are setting up studios, we say, look, go find local physios, introduce yourself. How would you present as a physiotherapist? How would you welcome a Pilates teacher who's not a physio coming to you? Yeah, um, good question. Um, I, I think uh, first up, and maybe this is um, because of the education hat, but the first thing is just to make sure that you are trained through a recognized training body. Um, that would be the first thing that I would ask somebody if they were to come to me. I would be like, oh, okay, cool, where did you do your training? Um, because across the world, it's getting much, much better, isn't it? I mean, you know, gosh, as, as you would know, Michael, more than, than anyone in that sort of mid-90s, early 2000s, you know, you could get a training qualification from anywhere, and there was such variety in it. So ensuring that you've got a, a well-founded, well-rounded training company and recognised certification behind you goes a long way. Um, but then just... Um, being able to uh, talk about the importance of varying the levels of exercise for the client. So um, knowing that if you're talking to somebody, be it a physio, osteo, chiro, somebody in the allied health world, I guess what we're going to want to hear more than anything is, you know, so you know, I'm trained in, in Pilates, I trained through this particular institute, um, I'm really keen to work with you. Um, you know, my approach to Pilates is you know, whatever that might be for you, but knowing that it's not a recipe. You don't teach a beginner script. You don't teach an intermediate script. You don't teach an advanced script um, because that's, I think, where the big sort of difference between maybe a fitness class and a what I would consider a more um, sort of boutique Pilates studio, if you like, um, is the difference that you're not just going to teach recipes and routines. You're going to be able to teach a program that's relevant for that particular client, that is relevant, you know, a group exercise that's relevant to a level. Um, and also learning a bit of, um, you know, learning a bit of the, the language. Um, because, again, I'll apologise to the physios that are on the, on the forum here. Um, but, uh, you know, it's the same when we go and speak to surgeons, right? When as physios we're going to speak to surgeons and looking at for referrals, we go in. Um, I'm just so apologies if anyone's married to a surgeon, um, but you know that uh, I'm trying to read people's faces. Anyway, you know, you know that. Yeah, <laughs> you know that surgeons love talking about themselves. They love hearing about how brilliant they are. And so if you go in and tell them how amazing their surgery is, then they're more likely to uh, to want to refer to you. So if you go in and talk to an allied health profession professional going in and you know, having a concept of some of the things you're asking them to send your way, you know, so, you know, knowing some of the terms, knowing what spondylolisthesis is, knowing what happens after a disc injury, knowing, you know, there's people with back pain that may come to you because I think one of the, the other things that's a, um, a ridiculous concept is that anyone who's had back pain should be with an allied health professional. I mean, that's just ridiculous. That's you know, what everybody is trained for. 94% of the population has had back pain at some stage. Um, to think all of those should be, you know, in a one-to-one -one with a clinician is just 
it's a little bit laughable, to be honest. Um, and that's what people now, today, um, I think, many are searching out Pilates classes because they're searching for something in their body that they want to improve. Um, and so just, I guess, being able to show your understanding beyond just a you know, basic repertoire approach. So there's a question come in. Um, do you like delivering um, training online? Do you like, you're doing education online? Is yes. It, how have you adapted? Because, you know, we, we were one of the funny dunny companies that said, we'll never do anything online. Uh-huh. And of course, then March came along and we started classes and then now we're doing full courses online. Yeah. And I've got my first reformer course coming up online very shortly. Yeah. How do you find yeah. it? Um, yeah, look, a good, a good question. Um, I find it on the education side, I've actually found it remarkably worthwhile and I've been extremely surprised because I didn't necessarily think it would work. I, I knew that we had to, we had no option. We had to, all of us had to transition in this way um, and do it. Um, I think uh, the, you know, I teaching the repertoire to trained individuals um, you know, actually, you can you can do some really great things online, and you know, I think the the use of the breakout rooms is essential. So you can still follow along those actual concepts within training. Um, I think pre-existing learning materials are essential. So getting across a lot of sort of the lecture content and what have you prior to the course starting online um, is really good. Um, uh, being able to uh, keep the the two-way conversation on the education courses I think is really important. So um, being able to keep that connection with the students that are in your particular course. Um, so I've been surprised, if I'm briefly honest, I have been surprised just how effective online education type stuff is concerned. Um, if I'm being truly honest with everyone, as far as teaching clients, um, I'm, I don't love it at all. Um, I love, much prefer to be in the studio. Um, I um, I like seeing people's bodies. I am tired of sort of staring at the screen like this, looking to see if I can see what somebody's doing. Um, I am, you know, a little over some of the interesting angles that you get shown when somebody's people set up their computers when you're doing a one-to-one a -one session. When it first comes to go, I've never seen so many bedroom ceilings in my life. close-ups of body parts yeah um, it was really i said to malcolm after i had one client she was um from here in greece actually and her husband was arguing on the on the balcony at the same time i was trying to teach and i said Is, could your husband go inside she said no he's fine and he was like screaming the dog was barking um she kept leaning yeah. forward i get either an ear <laughs> part of the chest and i said yeah. i said malcolm i want to go stack shelves at tesco <laughs> not what i signed up for yeah um, Yeah. But I think it's, it's difficult. I agree with you. It's more challenging. If you know the client, then I think that's very different to if you've got a new client. Yeah, yeah, very much. The client, if the client doesn't know anything and you don't know, and you yeah. don't know them, that is almost... Yeah, yeah. I do, think, I, I do think it's all... I, I do think it has changed forever, though. 
the way that we deliver education. Um, you know, it, it has, I mean, you know, the, and, and you're right. I mean, we've been able to, you know, educate people that would never have been able to make it to a live course. And, and that's therefore helped their community that they work in, which is a, a brilliant sort of result of this horrible situation. Um, it has allowed people to, you know, we've had a lot of people that, uh, because of family uh, restraints, it's just not feasible to take a weekend off and come to a course and certainly not feasible to go to a midweek course. And now they can actually access that content and they can, can do um, things that maybe they never would have been able to. So um, I'm very much looking forward to being able to do live training again, but um, online training, live stream training, um, you know, if I'm honest, it's here, it's here for good. And I think there's many elements of it that are very good. Um, but uh, I'm certainly... I'm certainly over the sort of centre use of, of Zoom. I can look forward to when we don't... Well, I don't know. Look, let's be honest. Probably online classes are here forever as well as an option for people. Um, well, but, yeah, I don't love teaching them that way. No, we, I think you tend to demonstrate, although Nula's here tonight. She didn't never demonstrate. She always talks. Um, but I think, you know, physically we're doing a lot more. We teach every day online classes. And definitely my bar class has raised my glutes up. And I'm just panicking that when we do come out of lockdown, the glutes, and I stop doing as much online classes, yeah. the glutes going to fall again. But listen, I want you to touch on just another second, because I wanted to bring up pelvic floor. I know we're almost out of time, and it's a big subject, because I find that there's two schools of thought when it comes to pelvic floor, which is, don't cue it. That's one school. Don't even mention it. And then there is the other school, which is at the other end. I think there's more than two schools, actually. But there's two which is like training hard. I train it almost like a, a fitness muscle, which we know is not correct. Um, I mean, back when this research came out, we were told there was co-contraction, you know, to give the option of both. Then we tend to find that someone may be more active if they're more dominant on the superficial muscle muscles, maybe best for pelvic floor. What's your current stance with cueing pelvic floor? <laughs> okay. How you, not how do you do it. Should you do it first? Should yeah. you cue the pelvic floor? Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you threw that in there right at the end when we're short of time, because that's a quick question to answer. Brilliant. Um, all right. Uh, first of all, let me um, let me preface it to say that um, uh, those that have um, a lot of experience and understanding within the women's health world are the ones that are best to answer this type of question, to be brutally honest. They know this a lot in a lot better detail. Um, if, again, I'm not, I don't like the concept that it's one or the other. That's the one thing I will say both here and with everything. I don't think you can say, right, oh, now this is the way you do it. You, I think there's things to be learned across both spectrums. So, um, uh, yes, I believe that we do need to have a connection to the pelvic floor. Um, I think the, um, what was it? I think it was 2010. Yeah, the 2010 study, um, I think, is one that maybe we can refer back to to try and get a better understanding of where this debate is all around. Um, and apologies if I pronounce this wrong, if you're going to go and search it up. Um, but I think it was um, Jan, Janjinka, I want to say. If any, Junjinka, um, J-U-N-G-I-N-G-L-E-R, something like that. Um, they did a study on specific yoga and Pilates exercises and pre-activation 
of the pelvic floor before the exercises and what it does to the bladder neck. Um, and this was around the time when the whole debate around should you pre-activate or not was happening. Um, and so they tested it out. Um, and they certainly showed that it is necessary to have a pre-activation of the pelvic floor in some way in order to make sure that you don't get a bearing down or a decrease in bladder neck. So the concept of not focusing on the pelvic floor, I don't necessarily agree with, unless, from my understanding, unless there's been a trauma to the pelvic floor that you don't want to bring a client's attention to. They might have a um, aversion to the pelvic floor due to a traumatic incident, and therefore you're better to cue away from the pelvic floor and trust the process. So when you're talking about cueing away from the pelvic floor, you're not just talking about transversus abdominis though, because yes, there's a co-contraction, but if you look at say a simple leg lift, as that brings in the posterior internal oblique, that has a fascial connection to the pelvic floor. So it might be that we get a initial concept of activation and then work a little bit harder if the movement comes off the floor, um, which I guess slightly circles back to where we were talking about earlier um, in that, you know, the concept of 30% or bracing or all these other various concepts. The one thing that I would say to that is they're all correct relative to the load of the task. So if I'm doing a very low level movement, I need a low level connection through my, my core. If I'm doing a higher level functional task, picking up a suitcase, doing a higher exercise, I need to activate a lot more. So again, not someone one or, or the other. Um, again, in terms of you touched on if somebody has too much tension, what does that mean? Um, well, again, I think that's why we need to understand that it's not an all or none approach because if somebody does have a hypertensive pelvic floor, then the approach is to try and allow that to, to release, to get some calming of the pelvic floor in order to correct function. Um, and the same can be said, I'm sure um, some people coming on to this tonight were probably wondering whether we'd uh, go on to um, the O'Sullivan research, which was more of the later research about the concept that actually you shouldn't activate the inner core at all because some people are too active and they have an overactive spinal musculature. And therefore, in that case, if you go to increase activation, you're making them worse, not better. Um, and, and again, it comes down to looking at the client. So yes, there are times if you've got somebody that has suffered from pain for some time and they're really stuck in a very upright, very extended position, then that is a person that you should focus on your movement, your mobility with first and don't cue until you've had a release, until you've taught them that it's safe to let go a little bit. Um, and so I think to try and uh, answer your, your question there with the pelvic floor, um, I don't believe that you should ignore it. I don't believe that you should brace it. Um, but I do believe that there needs to be a level of connection to the pelvic floor, likewise the inner core, prior to a Pilates exercise. And I, and I think the literature is probably showing that to be accurate as well. I think that my takeaway from this tonight really is that things aren't black and white, as we yeah. do. Uh, that it's Pilates has never been a set of movements that we should all do the same. I don't believe that, you know, there's a great school of thought that you just keep doing, if you can't do a movement, just keep doing it until you can do it. But my understanding is that the journey of doing that can cause more problems along the way, depending who that client is. 
So don't be black and white, is my takeaway, that things are, things are dependent on the client. Yeah. Look at the client. You've said, I think, almost like four, five, six times, look at the client, look at the client. I mean, so many teachers don't look at the client, especially if they're demonstrating all the time. Um, but that is that is a big thing for it. There are a couple of questions I want to get to. Um, Peter and a couple of people have asked for the links. Is it possible to get the links of the research? Can we share that with the with the video if you reset it afterwards? Yeah, sure. I'll um, I'll do a little sort of reference if I can remember the babble that I come out with and remember the actual references that I've I've put forward here. I will send across. I can just I guess send across a, just a, a generalized link of some interesting articles that that people yeah, might I mean, want to look at. It, it, um, the other thing is, yes, we know the teachers don't exercise, the Pilates teachers don't do enough Pilates themselves. That's kind of changed during lockdown. Um, <laughs> talking about trauma to the public floor, would you call injuries through birth or pregnancies traumatic? Would you say giving birth? Now, coming from your family, you have five children, as we yes. talked about earlier. Big Christmas. Um, but every time I see Elisa, we saw her in the Isle of Man, I said, I just cannot believe you've had so many children. Yep, yeah, believe it. She has. I believe it. Every day, I'm reminded that she's had that many yeah, children. Which uh, would you call injuries through birth or pregnancies traumatic? Um, I again, I think that it's not a a generalist topic there. But if you have had trauma to the pelvic floor through birth, then yes, that can be a a traumatic um, incident through the pelvic floor. <clears throat> Just giving birth doesn't necessarily have to be a traumatic no. process, basically. But there is the concept that, yes, you can have significant trauma um, through pregnancy. And again, that's when I, I... One of the things I think, you know, for, for myself as well, I think for everyone, um, and I think as you uh, get older, I'm led to believe, not that I've gone through that process yet, but I, what I understand is as you get older you become a lot more confident in what you do and don't know. And you become a lot more confident in being able to send certain people across to other people. So I, in relation to trauma to the pelvic floor, in relation to issues around birth, um, the, the, the understanding within the women's health sort of area, be it physiotherapy, exercise teachers who specialize in women's health, Pilates teachers that have a special interest in that area, um, you know, it's a, it's a really, really fascinating field that is evolving really quickly right now. The advances in the last two to three years in, in women's health um, movement understanding and women's health rehabilitation is, is huge. So um, I would um, highly recommend that you, you find a women's health specialist that you can partner with if that's the type of clientele that you're seeing. Yeah, recognise your limitations as well as in, in, well, exactly. It's impossible. And I think in, in all professions as well, and um, sort of um, we'll, we'll take some, some more questions there for sure, Michael. But one thing I did want to just touch on is the concept that um, sometimes I hear Pilates teachers say that, you know, oh, you know, I'm just a Pilates teacher. And I really don't like that, that sentence because um, it's, it's, it's not accurate. Pilates teachers know so much about how the body moves, no matter where you're trained from, the fact that you work with people's bodies all day long. And, you know, as I said earlier on, just coming from a physiotherapy background doesn't make you a, a brilliant movement teacher. Um, and so I think there you really need to, under, I think we as a profession need to really value what we do do and value how much we 
can give to anyone that wants to move more efficiently. Um, because, you know, I mean, look, Pilates changed my entire career. I was heading down a completely different path um, before I found Pilates. And um, it's been brilliant for my career. I've been able to help so many people. But I just think we, you know, as a industry, we, we really should be very um, proud and confident of what we're doing and not undersell our services, not undersell the profession in any way. Yeah, I think, you know, there's, we should be proud. And I think that we should also be motivated you know, to know that things do change and we have to keep learning. You know, I think if I always say, if, you, if somebody says, I you know, I'm an expert, I you know, I know everything, then run a 10 miles because nobody knows everything. Yeah. And that's what's refreshing. I'm glad that we actually, when you came over, we didn't turn you off Pilates. <laughs> Being the only, you and another man in the room, we didn't actually get you running down the street screaming that you stuck in there. Yeah. And, yeah. The, and passed the exam. I did, yes. That was there's two reasons for that. One, I was very thankful I passed the exam, but basically I was still trying to court Elisa, so that's why I had to stick it out because I, I was still. I was, you know, tell us, tell us this year. Uh, well, next year now, not this year. Uh, is your convention going to go ahead next um, next November? Next November. That uh, that is the plan. Yes, yes. We are very hopeful. So, um, you know, we've moved it from. You know, a week ago to February, and then we moved it again to November. So our hope very much is that that uh, yes, and um, you know, as you touched on earlier, I mean, our our approach is that um, the more we learn from many different teaching schools, the better we are as you know as teachers, as practitioners, and therefore the better job we can do with our clients. So, um, as you know, Michael, the the concept of the convention is a, a one goal, one community, and we invite every, uh, teachers from every single Pilates teaching school to come and share their knowledge and experience it. And if you take one or two things out of each session that can help you help somebody else, then that's what we consider the, the event to be a success. So, um, you know, when I first came into Pilates with you, Michael, I was a bit, a bit surprised about how there was, you know, all these closed doors and one teaching school didn't sort of, you know, you weren't allowed to go and train under another one. and um, everyone had these various um, sort of views of what's right and what's wrong. And, you know, I guess from my profession, we come from a best practice approach that you just have to find out what is the best thing for your client. Um, and I guess that's been uh, at APPI, that's been our sort of model and method the whole way of just saying, look, we want to learn as much as we can from anyone and everyone. Here's our thoughts. Happy to share those, but also happy to learn off of anyone and everyone. So. Um, I have to mention, yeah. your convention has always had the best lunch of any <laughs> convention. The best, from the, from the place in Regent's Park, the, uh, from you know, every convention, I always look forward to the lunch. While other places you're grabbing sandwiches, usually bad sandwiches, but you've always fed as well. So yeah. that's one of the best things about coming. Of course, being inclusive and meeting other people. Getting fun to the Yes, it is a good lunch. Sure. In the future, um, you are running online training. You, if people want to get more information from you, go to your yep. website. You're not in the head office. You did you just take that sign from the head office? No, right? no. I'm I'm still here. Yes, I am still here. It's uh yeah. As everyone, well, those of you, I'm not sure where you're all from, but those of you that are here in the UK will know that it's uh it's Black Friday here today. So that's a, a big day for us um, on both the education and the product side. So um, yes, I've been uh on the phones with everyone today uh, 
doing the best we can. Um, so, uh, yes, I am still in the head office. Uh, I am on my own now. Thankfully, the rest of the team have gone home. Um, but, yes, we are running um, online training. Um, we are filming, as everyone is, more and more to offer more and more of our content online. Um, as you touched on earlier, Michael, we always said we would never, ever put the, uh, the larger programs online, but this year has showed us that we have to. So, yeah, we pretty much have a, a mix of everything now. Online, live stream, or live whenever we can do that again. Um, and then, uh, yes, we have, uh, if any of you are <laughs> interested or out there, um, we have great offers uh, right through this weekend. So if you want to jump on the website, it's just appihealthgroup.com um, and you can have a look around there. Yeah, we all got our offers out today. The funny thing was this morning, I tried to send the email out and it was blocked twice and then our internet failed halfway through the day here. And I was like, what is happening? Who is plotting against us on the, on the Black Friday of, yeah. you know, of the year? But we managed to get the emails out. Listen, I want to wish you a happy Christmas uh, with Thank the family. You. Thank and, you. And um, really, I know it's not December yet, but we, Malcolm's going, it's not December yet. We have our Christmas tree up already. Yeah. Because I said, it's been such a glum end of the year. I said, um, I said I have to have the, I love Christmas. So the Christmas tree went up. We've got lots of decorations, so I feel it's moving towards Christmas. And yeah. um, so, well, I probably won't get to speak to you before Christmas. So, have a great yeah. Christmas. Thank you. You and too. Thank you again for this evening. And guys, give me a moment to get this edited. It won't be up by tomorrow morning. As uh, if, uh, well, if you're not here, you won't get the message. So you'll, you'll be sending messages to. But I'll get this up into your account as soon as I can, and we'll get the links from Glenn and put them into the same places uh, where the video is. But thank you all, all, and I hope to see you not, some of you I hope to see before Christmas, actually, because you're going to be coming to classes at home. Uh, but have a great evening, have a great weekend, and uh, we'll see you soon. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Welcome back, guys. I hope you uh, enjoyed that uh conversation there. Um, I know the sound quality maybe wasn't perfect, but hopefully uh, you still got the, the idea of what the conversation was all about. Um, look, I, it's uh, sort of taken up quite a bit of, of the time there, so I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Pilates 101. Very safe for me to say now, wishing all of you a very Merry Christmas and a Happy Holiday season. Um, it's been a challenging year for all of us, for our industry. It's been you know, a somewhat devastating year for many of us. Um, but we will continue. We will rebuild and we will come back stronger than ever, I'm sure. Um, along the way, um, in, I'm sure there's been many of our colleagues and some of your friends that maybe their small parties businesses or physio businesses maybe haven't survived and that really is devastating because even to open your doors just to get to that stage we appreciate the level of work and commitment that it takes and the challenges that this year has forced on many of us to those of you that have made it through i salute you hugely um, i can't remember a year in my life in sort of 20 years of doing this now that I've had to work harder than we have this year just to get by. So I know that I'm looking forward to taking a break over the Christmas 
uh, period. I'm looking forward to 2021. I'm looking enormously forward to seeing as many of you at our conference in November 2021 because I just want to have a massive celebration of this industry and the robustness of you people. You do inspire Elisa and I with your stories all the time. We follow you guys on Instagram. Um, if you're not following us, please do follow us at, at APPI Health Group. Um, you can follow Elisa at Elisa Withers and you can follow me at glenn.withers.physio. Um, but really, from all of us here at APPI, um, wishing you all a safe, a healthy, and I hope a restful holiday period. We'll see you in 2021. Bye for now.